It's May 1981, and in this episode of the Atari 8-Bit Magazine and Game Retrospective, we will look at the game Eastern Front 1941 by Chris Crawford, published first by APX and then by Atari. Also, I resurrect the tech segment of the podcast with a project of a more manageable scope, talk about an award for which the podcast was nominated, and share details on the Atari party in Davis, California on May 2nd, for which I'm donating some prizes, including a Raspberry Pi. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for Episode 8. Again, welcome to the Player Missile Podcast. Sorry for the delay. There's been lots of stuff going on. Did get to go on a little vacation, which was great. But then the kids were sick for like three straight weeks, so it's been a bit of a rough time finding some free time to record. This episode, looking at Eastern Front 1941, which is a game by Chris Crawford, who might be familiar to you as one of the authors of Dayray Atari. He's also one of the guys inside Atari who was. A driving force behind Atari eventually releasing the developer documentation. Dayray Atari was serialized starting in, um, I think, September of 81 in Byte Magazine. So when that rolls around, we'll start covering that in the podcast. I've also been spending time trying to finish up my main cabinet. I still haven't gotten very far in the physical building of the cabinet. I got some of the sides painted, and and, uh, my oldest boy helped me paint some of the stuff, so that was fun. He doesn't yet know what it's for, so it'll be a nice surprise when... He actually gets to see the fruits of his labor. <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned several times that it, the main cabinet's going to be powered by a Raspberry Pi, and they just announced the Raspberry Pi 2, which is a... I think it's a quad-core 900 megahertz. But anyway, the original Raspberry Pi was powerful enough to run all the 8-bit stuff. I'm looking at the Raspberry Pi 2 mostly for MAME and the emulation of arcade games, or really the usage of a more recent MAME build that supports like more games than the MAME for all. Um, Raspberry Pi specific build, which uses, I think, the 0.36 ROMs, which are quite old. So this is what well, this is February, I guess. In January, the retro challenge was going on. If I ever have enough free time to do a retro challenge, I think I would like to build a full-size Cray XMP case for a Raspberry Pi. I think that would be awesome. So if you've never seen a Cray XMP, it's like a supercomputer built into a like furniture. There's it's it's sort of a cylindrical base with a bench. And then a smaller cylinder in, inside that has the computer parts. So I think that would be just like amazingly awesome to have a, a piece of furniture that houses this Raspberry Pi, which is actually more powerful than the Cray XMP. And I'll include a link to uh, a guy who did a comparison about the Raspberry Pi and the Cray XMP. Also, more fun stuff. Sprite Castle is back. I don't know if you've listened to Rob O'Hara's uh, Commodore 64 Games podcast, but that's a lot of fun. And he finally started doing new episodes again, so thanks, Rob. Been enjoying listening to those. Oh, and some Atari-related news. The Atari Party 2015, the dates have been firmed up, May 2nd in 2015 in Davis, California. I'll include a link to the show notes to all the stuff. I'm donating some stuff. I'm donating some USB to DB9 joystick controllers, as well as the Raspberry Pi that I'll be demoing there. I'm going to have a Raspberry Pi, the original Raspberry Pi Model B, running the Atari 800 emulator at least, and maybe Stella and uh, Atari for 2600 and ST stuff, respectively. But certainly Atari 800, I'll be running that. And at the end of the show, I'll give that away to somebody at the who registers for the prize drawing. I have a bit of connection to that uh, USB to DB9 controller, actually. I wrote part of a Linux driver for that, which sort of sounds more impressive than it is, in that I don't really know that much about Linux drivers, and it's a really complicated and arcane subject and changes all the time, and the Linux kernel mailing list is a sort of a... <laughs> it's like a large barrier to entry because the people don't seem to be that friendly to newbies from what I've seen. So I wrote this a lot without help, just kind of looking at the Linux source code. And another user on GitHub actually figured out a lot more stuff than me, how to integrate it into the kernel and stuff. 
So I'll include a link to my original Linux driver and the improved Linux driver that actually interfaces with the modern kernels a little bit better. But basically, the Retrolink USB controller wasn't moving in a couple directions, and it worked in Windows, and so I was able to figure out why it worked in Windows, but not in uh, Linux. And I sort of hacked around it. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in using this on Linux, there's a, there's a driver to use. And I will link to the better one. Onto the feedback. And I have to say thanks, everybody. I have over 100 Twitter followers now. So thanks for checking out the Twitter feed. And my Twitter feed, actually, it, it tends to like sawtooth. It goes up for a little bit, then goes down and goes up and goes down. So I haven't looked at it for a couple of days and in the hopes that it stays at 100 or above. I don't know if some people like unfollow me because I don't follow them back immediately or if it's spam accounts that get deleted or something. But for all of those, for those of you who do follow me on Twitter, thanks a lot. And I haven't really mentioned this before, but I don't really do Facebook very much because it's just such a time sink. And I have such a limited time that I've kind of had to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I can have enough time to do Twitter, but I don't have enough time to do Facebook. I just tend to get sucked into Facebook and it just, yeah, just all the time goes and I have no time to do the podcast or so. It would be even less frequent than it is now, which is not as frequent as I hoped it would be. I got some feedback from Wade from Inversitaski who uh, said, great interview with Bill and good explanation of what I previously thought as voodoo smoke and mirrors. Now I need to get gem drop. Thanks and keep up the great work. Yeah, I encourage you to play gem drop. It's really a fun game. It's really one of those games you can just pick up and play for a couple times and go. It's, you know, really a, a nice throwback to the old games where you, you didn't have to read a complicated manual and you just pick it up and play it and have fun. Got a nice long email from Justin Knight who had written me previously, friend of the show, and he said, I have just yesterday enjoyed listening to episode 7 and would like to congratulate you on the continued success of the show amongst the Atari 8-bit community and to thank you for your very worthwhile endeavors. Well, thanks, Justin. Yeah, I'm happy that you enjoy it, and uh, thanks again for writing in, because it does does keep me going. He goes on to say, I am still really enjoying the show and believe that Player Missile really complements rather than competes with the other two Atari podcasts, Antic and Inversitaski, which I also follow and have done since day one. In Episode 7, you mentioned that you personally like the technical aspects of the show, and I, too, would definitely agree that this is a very valuable section of the broadcast. I have some knowledge of the technical side of the Atari, and I'm always happy to listen to more technical aspects of computer programming. He goes on to say, I wait with great anticipation the Eastern Front episode, as this is an item of software that I both owned in the 80s on my 800XL, and then a few years ago, I received the ROM cartridge with a second-hand Atari 800 computer in a deal that I purchased on eBay in the UK. I have also downloaded a copy of the source code for reference purposes. Over the last seven episodes, it's been great that you've discussed at least three games that I've owned in the days of my Atari 8-bit these being Episode 1 of Star Raiders, Episode 3 Space Invaders, and Episode 4 Caverns of Mars. These episodes have given me the opportunity to compare your views with my own on games that I spent many hours enjoying. And it's especially interesting to hear of other titles in the shows, some of which I've never even heard of, such as Sabotage and Jawbreaker. I believe the addition of new homebrew titles from Episode 7 can only benefit the show. I would just conclude this email by saying thank you, Rob, for the enormous effort and enthusiasm that you put into Player Missile, and I look forward to downloading Episode 8 in a few weeks. Well, thanks, Justin. Thanks for the note, and <laughs> it's been more than a couple weeks. Sorry about that. So thanks for your patience, and thanks for the feedback. Over on Atari Age, they just started up uh, High Score Club Series 12, and they just started it, so I encourage you all to check it out. I'm hopefully going to compete in all the games this season. I'm really going to make an effort at it. The first game is Pac-Man Jr. Which is a really good Pac-Man port. It's like a scrolling Pac-Man, so it's, you know, it's wider than the screen. Really, really hard. I uh, submitted a couple scores. I'm solidly in the middle of the bottom half, so I think that's going to be my target area. Yeah, so go check it out, the Atari Age High Score Club for the 8-bit computers. I'll put a link to the uh, latest season in the show notes. More sort of feedback uh, on Twitter, I think. One of the guys on Antic was badmouthing the Android, and I'm an Android user, so I had to defend Android a little bit. So if you listen to the, hopefully the, the latest Antic episode, it will include my little bit on how to install an Atari 8-bit emulator on Android. 
And, yep, thanks to Randy, Brad, and Devin. What's that guy's name? I forget his name. And finally, in feedback, this is my first podcast since the Potty Awards. So, if you have heard about the Atari Age Forum thread, two worthy video game podcasts. This was started back in 2009 by uh, Atari Age user S1500. And he uh, subsequently created the Potty Awards in his own podcast, the Classic Console Gamer News. So, Player Missile was nominated in the Best New Retro Computing Podcast category. And I was, it was a surprise people choice win. I actually won it. So thanks. That's a, a total surprise, but it's it's a nice honor. Thank you very much. You know, I have to admit that I hope I'd win it, you know, I suppose, as everybody does when they're up for awards. But, you know, I wouldn't have been disappointed had I not. Uh, I must say that I really haven't won a lot of awards in my life, so I don't have this expectation of winning a lot of stuff. As a kid, I remember I had friends who just had, you know, like rooms full of dirt trophies and ribbons and stuff. And yeah, that was not me. So thanks to the folks on the forum, S1500 for the award, and the people who mentioned Player Missile in the uh, lead up to the voting, uh, RJ, Ferg, and Willie. I'm guessing that's what S1500 was referring to when he was talking about the people's choice. So thank you guys especially, and thanks everyone for listening. So we'll move on to a new section of the podcast. I am going to do a tech segment. So where I initially sort of hoped to do a tech segment where I develop my own game, I think I'm, I found something that I think is sort of more doable. Um, I'm going to answer a few technical questions. Well, answer is a strong term. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to ruminate on some technical stuff that people might raise and perhaps it'll be correct. So there are two things I want to talk about. First, uh, Kevin Savitz from the Antic Podcast. I actually do know his name. It's a sort of inside joke if you've listened to Antic Podcast. He's just... <laughs> he, always, he can never seem to remember my name. So I'm just teasing him about that a little bit. But anyway, Kevin asked on Twitter, he said, if you're going to che- change the seed in River Raid, would you get a completely different map? E.g. a whole new game for one bite? Alternately, change the static seed to a random one and for a new map every time? Well, that might work, and could you get usable maps? So this is in reference to the stuff I said last episode about pseudorandom number generators and how River Raid used this to generate deterministic terrain without actually storing all the terrain in the cartridge. So yeah, essentially, so if you set up this pseudorandom number generator with a certain seed, every time you call the generator, the the results are going to be the same. It's going to give you the same list of numbers as you call it. So River Raid and other games like this will set this up, and then they can ge- they can generate the same sequence of events by calling the, the, the random number generator, the pseudo-random number generator. So I was thinking about this, though, and I'm not a game programmer, so don't take this as gospel, but I would think you would almost have to have separate number generators because I can imagine if you set up a pseudo-random number generator for the terrain, it would be deterministic as long as you didn't use any random numbers for other things. But if you used random numbers for, say, you know, in, in terms of river raid, you know, when the planes start to fly out or when they shoot or something, if the planes do the same random number generator as the terrain random number generator, I can imagine that there that it wouldn't be deterministic, that the terrain would then find another random number at a different time and change the terrain. So, me as the sort of a, a neophyte game programmer, I would think you'd almost have to have separate random number generators for the terrain and the events, like the, you know, the, jet, the jets, the bombs, the missiles, whatever. So that's my take at it. So if any of you folks have designed games under these sort of, you know, limited hardware capability constraints... Maybe you can let me know if if my ideas are <laughs> are are you know valid. But that's my thought. That's how I would do it as you know someone who's not really designed a game on the six five zero two all the way through, or at least someone who's not designed an AI in six five zero two. On Twitter, Alex Santos sent a link around for a guy who had started to reverse engineer the game Star Raiders. So I'll include that link in the show notes as well. And so this is sort of the focus of my new tech segment here, is I'm going to attempt to remove the slowdown from Star Raiders during the explosions. I read an article 
um, somewhere with uh, Doug Neubauer, who wrote Star Raiders, and said that the reason the slowdown was there is because he didn't have enough time to optimize the division routine because the 6502 doesn't have a doesn't have division, so you've got to write that in software. So my goal for this tech segment, so who knows how long this is going to run because it's going to take me a while to sort of understand the source code for Star Raiders. But my goal is to find the division routine in Star Raiders and see if I can optimize it. And the nice thing about this, the, why why it's going to be easier for me is I don't have any memory constraints anymore. Star Raiders is a, what is it, an 8K cartridge? And so now I'm going to assume that I have the whole 48K of RAM and a, a regular 400, 800 um, to work with. So there's a bunch of ways to divide on the 6502, and one is just a you know a brute, brute force algorithm, which is uh, you know essentially decoding the division to a bunch of subtractions and uh, and comparison routines. You can also use logarithms or a bunch of lookup tables, and you can interpolate. Although interpolation ends up using multiplication and division itself, so that might not work. And finally, one of the other ways to do it is using reciprocals and then multiply. So I'm not sure what the best thing is going to be. I'm going to look at some resources and I'm include a couple links to the to those that I found in the show notes. So if you've got any ideas, feel free to send them to me. But yeah, so that's going to be my idea for the tech segment is to see if we can speed up Star Raiders so the explosions don't slow down the whole game. As I mentioned in uh, the Star Raiders episode and on Twitter, I think, there was a version of Star Raiders that didn't have the slowdown, but they did that by reducing the number of points in the explosions so the explosions aren't nearly as impressive. So I'd like to keep the impressive number of uh, dots in the explosions, but have that not slow down the game. So we'll see if that's possible. And that is going to be my goal for the tech segment for this podcast. All right, let's take a look at some magazines. The first magazine we'll look at is Analog Issue Number 3. That's marked as May and June of 81. And on the front cover... There's a robot bartender, and he's talking about languages for your computer. And there's lists of, like, Pilot, Cobol, Fortran, Basic, Assembler, Pascal. The little robot guy in the front cover is kind of reminiscent of uh, something you might see on Futurama, but obviously way ahead of its time. <laughs> there's an ad early on for, um, sign page four, for the for Compute's first book of Atari, which I can't remember if I had the first book of Atari... I'll have to go back and look. I think I, I know I had a couple of these compute books. And one of the listeners of the podcast, Michael Portsweezy, has a couple articles published in some subsequent compute books. So we'll definitely be looking at, at these books as they as they come up. I haven't figured out exactly when I'm going to fit them in the podcast, but I definitely am going to start talking about some of these some of these books. There's an editorial by Lee Pappas, and I heard Kevin Savitz say that he's got an upcoming interview with Lee Pappas in uh, the Antic interviews. So looking forward to hearing that. Now basically, the first part of the editorial talks about how they've been sort of falling behind in the publishing dates and that they're going to stop using months on their on their uh, cover. So like this one is issue number three for May and June, but the, the editorial says, well, it's late June as this is going to press. So they're going to stop doing that, they said. And they do pick that up back later, but I don't want to spoil it too much. And then the second part of the editorial is about pirating. And there's sort of a, a prescient sentence at the end. It says, Piracy in the world of Atari computers seems especially high, and if it doesn't slow down, you'll see less and less quality programs available for your machine. In the long run, you really hurt yourself. And, yeah, we've certainly... I th- think that piracy really killed the Atari market. Well, I mean, there was a bunch of dumb decisions by Atari management, so we can't let them off completely. But certainly there's a, a big... Uh, effect that piracy had on the the software market. There is an ad for a couple bits of software, to Temple of App Size available for Atari, and the game Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, which I vaguely remember playing. I, th- I thought about reviewing for the podcast at some point, but it's I think it's too much of a strategy kind of game for me, as, as I'm finding here with Eastern Front and the length of time it took me to get this episode out. Uh, I don't think I'm really going to review strategy games again for a while, at least. I'm going to try to refocus on the arcade-style game, something that's easy to pick up and easy to play and doesn't take huge amounts of time investments uh, for me, which I've found is a problem. I just don't have a lot of time that I can sit down at once and play all these games. I need something I can pick up and play and come back to. 
There's an ad for the Axelon 256 kilobyte memory expander. I don't know much about Axelon. I don't know if, were they RAM disks or were they like actual physical addressable memory that you could use? So I'm going to have to look into that. There's a tutorial on the assembler editor cartridge. It's called the assembler editor non-tutorial by Charles Bashan. And he's mostly talking about compiler directives, things like um, where to put the object code, the title, how to make it, you know, print prettily, um, that kind of stuff. There is a review of Letter Perfect, which I bet Wade is going to cover at some point. A couple of pages later, there's a VCS update. So this is they're still covering the Atari VCS. And as uh, when I talked to Mike DeShane in the interview I had in a couple episodes ago, they still were they were actually selling Atari products out of their store, the same store they were uh, writing. They're doing analog, and they still had VCS stuff. So they. I don't think the VCS stuff lasts for very much longer, but it's still here. There's a couple more reviews. There's a review of Atari Touch Typing, which also may be a to review. A review of OSS Basic A+. And so C Antic interview episode, I think it's number 8, with Bill Wilkinson, which is all about OSS, optimized system software. Really, really nice interview. There's also a review of Missile Command on the 8-bits, and I'll review this in a subsequent episode because I... Missile Command is an iconic game, and so I want to talk about this and in comparison to the arcade game. And really, I want to talk about GCC and Super Missile Attack. There's a, there's a cool story there that I want to get into. GCC also designed the 7800, and now there's a podcast on the 7800 by uh, Phil the No Sword Gamer, so I'll include a link to that if you've not already heard that uh, podcast. I have learned a little bit about the 7800 from learning about GCC a little bit, and he goes into more detail on the games, and, and uh, it's kind of in the vein of Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast, if the, if the title didn't give it away. There's a review of 32K expansion boards from four manufacturers, and they go into a few details about installation and stuff, and uh, a feature of the Atari 800 at the time was these big sort of plastic encased memory boards. So when you open up the lit top lid of the 800... You'd see the ROM card, and then you see slots for the RAM cards. And most of them had plastic shells around them, which was a cause of overheating. And so that later on, they took out those plastic shells. And in this review, they listed that all of them had a plastic case except for one, is that Axlons did not have the plastic case around it. On the back cover is an ad for something called the Lastic, which is a most I assume is a motion-sensing joystick, but it's a joystick without a base. I remember seeing these. I never actually tried one. So it's, you know, we're still talking about 81, so it's probably not, you know, accelerometers like everybody has in their smartphones nowadays. So I don't know if it's mercury switches or, I don't know, ball bearings? It's all ball bearings nowadays. Compute number 12 for May of 1981. On the cover for the Atari, there's a blurb about using basic strings for graphics storage, among some other non-Atari stuff. Uh, there's a continuing series on the article of the mysterious and unpredictable R&D function. Oh, this is the final article in the series, and it includes answers to exercises that were printed in the last article, and I, I don't remember exercises. The Atari Gazette this month includes a bunch of stuff. There's a, a machine language routine to use page 6 to provide Boolean operators for Atari Basic, like and or not that kind of stuff. Those weren't available in Atari Basic. There's a pretty nice sound routine to generate sort of hyperspace-sounding effects that sounds a lot like Star Raiders, which I'll play here. There's a routine to copy the screen to your printer, and it just scans graphics RAM and dumps it to the printer. There's a little blurb on the... There's some hardware information that was going to be available by ordering from Atari. The OS and the DOS reference manuals. It says to order manual, include a check and letters stating which manual you want to order to Atari customer support. For those Atari owners who have been tormented by the inadequacy of information concerning the hardware and other technical aspects, relief is finally here. Three manuals are now available. The Atari 400 Inner Technical User Notes... Part number C016555 at a cost of $27 plus $3 shipping. 
which includes information on the OS and other hardware, as well as schematic diagrams. The Atari 400-800 operating system, part number CA016557, cost of $17 plus $3 shipping, includes uh, machine language routines that reside in the OS, so I presumably, I guess, a uh, disassembly of the whole OS, and the Atari 400-800 disk operating system, manual, this part number C016558, cost of $4 plus 150 shipping and handling, includes the machine language routines that are used in DOS. So I haven't really seen these, but um, I know I've heard the Antic podcast guys talk about them. There's the article referenced in the on the front cover using strings as graphic storage. And again, it kind of uses the technique of writing bytes directly to the graphics RAM and letting the, the bit patterns of the bytes themselves draw the colors, so it's kind of a, a low-level routine. There's another little program to print out uh, a disk, direct, disk directory listing right to the printer, which I sort of remember that using DOS and having a a lot of files on one um, disk, it would like scroll off and be hard to see. It have to stop the screen is displayed, and so being able to print out to a printer would be convenient. And there's an article about condensing data statements on the Atari, so it replaces integer data with the equivalent Atasky strings. There's a little basic program to simulate an alarm clock using the real-time clock of the Atari, and there's a review of Stud Poker by Dynacomp. In the new products section of the magazine, there's a, a column titled Atari Launches Major Software Acquisition Program, which is basically talking about the creation of APX. So the lead is a major new effort to expand the library of consumer-oriented software for its personal computer systems is being launched by Atari Inc. Atari is looking for high-quality programs that can be used immediately, easily, and by people with little or no training in the use of computers. There's a quote by some nameless Atari person that says, We want to acquire software in the areas of personal finance, self-improvement, education, and home entertainment. We are encouraging the creation of software authors. And it goes on to say that the acquisition program involves creation of these Atari Software Acquisition Program Regional Centers, where qualified developers can work with Atari equipment and receive technical assistance. And it says, the creation of the Atari Program Exchange, a free quarterly catalog of user-written software to be distributed to Atari owners. It says, in addition, Atari will offer periodic technical seminars for qualified software authors to familiarize them with the inner workings of the Atari computer products and enable them to write programs that take advantage of all the advanced features of the Atari 400 and 800 computers. So this is mid-81, and they are finally saying, we recognize that a broad selection of readily available software is a critical key to the ultimate consumer market. No one company can create the amount of material needed to properly address the market, so we're going to do our best to encourage our users and software vendors to create programs compatible with Atari computers. So uh, this is mid-81, and the computers have been out for going on a year and a half, and they're finally coming to this decision that they can't do everything first party. Yeah, I think had they done this from the beginning, Atari would have had more momentum and kind of staved off some of the Commodore 64 um, inroads that ultimately pushed the Atari out of the market. So talking about the acquisition centers, the initial one is in Sunnyvale, which is obviously where Atari was based. And it doesn't say about where any others might be created. And then finally it says, once a program is completed, Atari may be interested in marketing it under the Atari name or accept it for listing in the APX catalog. Or developers may wish to market the program on their own. So nice effort, but I keep wondering if it was too late. And it there's an ad for Creative Computing Magazine, and I just I still find it funny that these magazines are advertising in other magazines, and that magazines would allow other magazines to advertise in them. So here's a magazine that might be better than ours. Go check it out. I don't know. I still think that's kind of funny. Although you know, talking with Mike Deshane, he said he never really thought they were competing directly, and that that people could would support both magazines. You know, comparing Analog to Antic, for instance. So maybe it's not so unusual. Maybe just I just compare it to like television networks, you never see like an ABC show being advertised on CBS or something. All right, let's look at Creative Computing. This is Creative Computing Volume 7, Number 5 for May 1981. And as a side note, uh, there's a computer researcher, Lane Nooney, she's an author doing research on a book about uh, CR Online, sent out this Twitter note that said, uh, three months of advertising in Creative Computing uh, in 1980 cost $449. I'd never seen a price for advertising before. So that's about $1,275 today. 
So the cover of this issue is uh, it's all about personal finance. In terms of Atari-related stuff in the magazine, there's a, an article about Sears. Sears has been selling the uh, Atari in its larger stores, apparently, and they were listed in their catalog, but they were recently polled, according to this. It said uh, they only showed seasonal demand on a mail-order basis. It says Sears is now planning to jump in with both feet with a chain of standalone retail computer stores. Five stores in three market areas will be opened in the third quarter, and rumor has it that two locations will be Dallas and Houston. And Ray Kassar, president of Atari, claims that Sears will sell the Atari 400 and 800 units. And Sears would only confirm that the Atari line was under evaluation, along with Apple and Commodore. There's an article on fantasy games, and it talks about Scott Adams. I still haven't watched the documentary Get Lamp yet. I need to do that. And there's an overview of several kind of fantasy text adventure sort of games in there. There's a recruiting ad from Atari. It says, we're having a creativity explosion. So they're talking about jobs they have available. There's opportunities within our coin-op division and our video computer system and personal computer divisions. So they're looking for microprocessor programmers. It says, discover the excitement in programming coin-operated video games in this incredible growth area with a BSCS or equivalent experience, assembly language experience necessary, and microprocessor experience and interest in games desirable. I would say that's probably a requirement. They're, they're looking for a microprocessor programmer. It says you'll find unlimited avenues for your creativity with our VCS cartridges, toys, and products. Assembly programming on many are microprocessors, real-time control programming, hardware background, and BSEE or CS or math, plus one to three experience would make you an ideal candidate. They're looking for senior microprocessor programmers. We need programmers on the 6502 preferred or 6800. Your experience on data general equipment, along with programming in DGL and Algol. You will enjoy working on development of programming for our data general control test equipment design. Minimum supervision on long-range products. Bachelor's degree or equivalent, EE or CS preferred, along with three to five years experience on data general equipment preferred. Here for more for interest of our podcast here, it's a software developer. Step into our PCS division and design and develop software in the areas of personal interest, entertainment, professional development, and more. Your in-depth, in-depth experience of five to ten years coupled with software design and development in real time, interactive graphic systems are key professional tools, microprocessor background preferred, writing and artistic talents, plus systems analysis and specifications development background would be ideal. Degree or equivalent required. Looking for software project management engineers, communication software developers. And then it says, Atari provides you the ultimate state-of-the-art environment complemented by exceptional salaries and benefits, which include company-paid employee leave slash health slash disability slash dental insurance, plus a sabbatical leave policy, which offers seven weeks paid leave of absence after seven years continuous service with Atari. (laughs) Yeah, that's not likely to happen. Talk about an empty promise, huh? Please send your resume, including salary history, or contact our employment department, or Circle 114 on the reader service card. After that, there's an ad by uh, Microsoft for something called the Soft Card, which is a Z80 card for the Apple II to run CPM on your Apple II. And there were ways to run CPM on the Atari, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think there's an expansion module that were kind of like the 850. Hmm, I don't remember. There's an article on the Office of the Future, and there's sort of this triumphant picture of a Xerox 5700 laser printer. It's basically, it's this guy in a suit and tie, and next to it, it's like a two-part machine. It's like a washing machine-sized monitor-computer combo thingy uh, next to a refrigerator-sized printer that's turning out pages. We've come a long way in the reduction of the size of these things. There's an ad for a company called the Mini Micro Mart. It says, if North Star or Chromemco have it, we have it. That's a reseller out of New York. Talking about the North Star Horizon and the Kermemco System 3. I wouldn't know anything about these, except I've heard them on the History of Compu- Personal Computing podcast. So the North Star Horizon was like 2600 bucks, which is a whopping 7400 bucks in today's dollars. And the Kermemco System 3 is an unbelievable $6,395 at that time, or $18,000 today. There's an ad for the UCSD... P-System, it's a bytecode interpreter, which so you can write in multiple language and like the Java virtual machine, I guess, where you can, there are several front ends to Java now, like Java, and then there's Jython and stuff, so you write this bytecode, 
So not only can you use multiple languages to write the bytecode, but then the bytecode can be run on different machines. It's sort of an early cross-platform development system. So for this system, they're offering UCSD Pascal, Fortran, Basic, or Assembly Language. Well, that seems odd. Assembly Language generating P-code? Hmm. There's an ad for Computerland stores, and they say they know Atari, with 150 stores worldwide. There's an article about break-even analysis with VisiCalc. Wade covered this in his Season 1, Episode 8 of the Inverse Atasky. There's an ad for Computer Camp East, which is a, a co-ed preteen and teens camp for uh, ages 10 to 17. It says, I swam, I hiked, I ran a computer. It says I'll have a brighter future and earn a competitive edge in schools and careers. Enrollment is limited. Act today. The camps were in, looks like, Connecticut and day-only programs in Cambridge, Weston, and, and Cape Cod. Oh, and Hartford, Connecticut. There's an article on intelligent computer games, and it's, so it's an article about the logic of draw poker and the complexities of doing the computer player. The Outpost Atari this month is a guest author by Mike Dunn. And in the interview that I think Kevin on Antic had with um, David Small, I think he said in the interview that he thought it was May of 81, but I couldn't find a reference. In, in June of 81, there are certainly articles by Dave and Sandy Small. So it may be that he wrote it in May and it didn't get into the till the June issue. But I don't think I have looked ahead a little bit and I don't think he does the Outpost Atari next month, but I think it's shortly after that he takes over Outpost Atari. So in this one there's an article by uh by Mike Dunn it says how to build a cable that attaches to your monitor outjack to output sound to a stereo system. So basically you wire a, a DIN jack to the RCA plugs and then you can get sound out of your uh, stereo. There's some simple basic programs to list, to list disk contents and a simple typewriter program where you enter a line of text and when it when you return, it prints out that line to the printer. The back cover is still the Ohio Scientific Computer. Softside issue number 32, May 1981. Cows, cows, cows on the cover looking right at the camera, right into your soul. It says, Dairy Farming, will you rise to the top? And I didn't notice this before, but there's a column by Scott Adams of Adventure International, the same Scott Adams featured in Get Lamp and stuff. It's called Say Yo-Ho. And in this, I'll have to... I'm sort of kind of de-emphasizing soft side because I don't really like the programs all that much so far, but I'll still cover them, but I'll just be pretty brief, although I am going to start looking at this column. He tells a story in this col- column about him killing five computer components in a single night. So the games in here, there's a game called Bombardment, which is a Missile Command-ish clone. And there's a game called Lunar Mission, which is a sort of a non-rotating lunar lander. So instead of the arcade game where you actually rotate and thrust and stuff, it's just you have the main thruster, and then there's a left and right sort of little mini thrusters. So I didn't really look at these programs because I am not super excited about the basic programs I've seen recently in SoftSide. There's an ad for the Atari Connection with a joystick for uh, 1995. So this is a regular CX40 joystick, and that works out to be $57 in today's money. Alright, let's do the game review of Eastern Front 1941. This is a strategy game released by APX on disc and tape in uh, 1981, and then on cartridge in 1982 by Atari. It's a one-player game using the joystick and a little bit of keyboard. So, of course, the game is based on World War II, uh, the big battle of the Eastern Front. And I try to avoid being topical on this podcast because, I don't know, I don't really want to cover news, but I am kind of hoping that the series The Man in the High Castle that was recently, uh, the pilot episode was made by Amazon. I hope that gets picked up. Because I'm sort of a sucker for these alternate history things. So I read the the Philip K. Dick book on uh, Man in the High Castle. I don't really remember much about it. But the pilot was pretty good. So the sort of premise is as the Japanese and Germans defeated the U.S. and partitioned America. And it's kind of a drama about the resistance that goes on and the efforts to stop that resistance. I don't know that much about Second World War history. Obviously, I do know that the United States wasn't defeated. Uh, I read parts of Churchill's sixth volume, The Second World War History, and I need to read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, but I guess there's 
some scholarly criticism of that, and it's more like a, a bunch of personal... Well, there's... It was written by a journalist and not a historian, so I guess historians have some issue with the amount of editorializing he does. So there's a couple links that I'll include. There's a there's a Reddit thread about the sort of the criticism of of that book. There's a couple of links. There's a eight things you should know about World War II's Eastern Front from history.com. And it has some just staggering stuff. It says uh of the estimated 60 to 70 million deaths caused by World War II, around half occurred on the Eastern Front. The struggle was especially hard on Soviets who may have seen as many as 25 million troops and civilians killed, nearly 15% of their entire pre-war population. The Eastern Front was also responsible for the lion's share of the German military deaths. All told, 8 out of every 10 German troops killed in World War II perished while fighting the Soviets. Just staggering, staggering loss of life. As I mentioned before, I'm sort of a sucker about code-breaking stories, and so there's, a, there's several code-breaking books that I've read, uh, certainly, especially about the Enigma one of the best is Seizing the Enigma by David Kahn. And another one I got for Christmas is called Battle of Wits. It's uh, the complete story of code breaking in World War II by uh, Stephen Budiansky. Looking at it right here, it's uh, it's mostly from the U.S. and uh, U.K. perspective. And part of that is because the the Germans didn't think they uh, the codes really would be broken. I guess it was uh, mostly... Well, he kind of, one of his theses is that totalitarian governments don't really think outside the box that much. So, anyway, that's a, it's a really good book. One thing I didn't really know about the, about Eastern Front is how close the German army actually got to Moscow. Apparently, um, there was one, before the, before the big winter in 1941, they, the German army advanced within to, within about 30 kilometers of, uh, the Kremlin said it reached the last tram stop in the Moscow line in Kimki. So the game itself is a simulation of the World War II. So you're playing the German army advancing into Russia. It's a turn-by-turn strategy game. And the object is to march into Russia as far as you can and, and take it and hold as many cities as you can. You get extra bonus points for holding Moscow. So it simulates the combat. You don't really see the combat. You're, just, you're looking at sort of representations of the armies itself. And it simulates stuff like the supply lines and the morale of the troops, but you're you're dealing with it from a strategic level, not a tactical level. So this is not like a fighting game where you see individual armies and tanks moving around. So you're looking at a really large map and controlling the strategy. There's a great infographic, and this is sort of before the term infographic came around. But if you've never seen this, you should check it out. It's a uh, it's about Napoleon's march into Russia by Charles Minard. There's so much information on this chart. It shows the strength and size of the of uh, Napoleon's army and the path they took into Russia and then back out. And just to see the the strength that the army started out with versus what came home is it's just a one of the most powerful uses of the infographic medium that I've ever seen. There's a famous quote by Napoleon that an army marches on its stomach. It's amazing how much supplies it takes to keep people going. And we're talking about millions of, of men. If you think about it, water weighs one kilogram per liter, or what, it's about eight pounds a gallon. And I have to go on a little bit of a metric rant here because the metric system makes so much sense and, and the English system is just messed up. It's all these units conversions and it's like the metric system makes so much sense. It's all powers of 10. English system, you know, there's two different pounds. There's a pound force and a pound mass. Yeah, so that always, that messes you up, especially when you have to do, like, calculations for fuel flow rates or whatever and engineering that we had to do. Like, is the is the flow in pounds mass per second or is it in slugs per second? It's like, ugh, just crazy. I love that Australia went full bore and converted, and Canada mostly has converted, although there's still, there's still a few things that are left in English units. I guess in the U.S., the big, biggest argument... I can think of as the construction industry, you know, like 16-inch on-center studs, which converts to 406.4 millimeters, and the metric standard is just 400 millimeters exactly. So that would be that would be tough to change. You know, all our lumber and stuff is in, you know, makes sense in English units, but you convert that to metric units, and it's just their oddball, just non-round number metric units. Metric system makes so much more sense, but I will say that I'm happy with beer glasses being pints. 
But just as an aside, if, as, if, as if this weren't a long enough aside, there's a bunch of unit conversion problems, like the the Gimli glider, which was a aircraft that was fueled incorrectly based on uh, different n- units being used. And then there was the Mars Climate Orbiter, which was a difference in you know newtons versus pounds for a, a thruster conversion. It sent the orbiter right into the atmosphere, burned it up. Anyway, back to the game. The author is Chris Crawford. Uh, Antic guys had a great interview with him back in their uh, episode four. There's a Kotaku interview that talks about 30 years later, one man is still trying to fix video games. That's a great interview with him as well. James Haig in his uh, ebook Halcyon Days has an interview with him, and he's got his own personal website that has a whole bunch of stuff, you know, source code and everything, so that's worth checking out. So from the James Haig interview, he asked uh, Chris Crawford, so Eastern Front was a state-of-the-art war game at the time. What deficiencies of contemporary games were you trying to overcome? And Chris Crawford said, two, poor user interface and poor artificial intelligence. He said the AI was particularly clever. All the user I.O. was taken care of during vertical blank processing. And the AI was done during the mainline processing using a system of convergent, convergent approximations. So it said the AI started off with a stupid move and then kept examining improvements on it. And he said you could take as long as you want to plan your own move, but every second you took to plan, the computer got another million cycles to refine its own move. Another question James Haig asked was, why was Eastern Front released through Atari, uh, through APX rather than the official Atari label? And then he replied, because the Atari marketing people thought a war game would never sell. So clearly that changed because they released it on cartridge uh, the next year. As it originally released by APX, it's just got the, kind of the standard typed APX manual that's not like super outstanding, but the Atari manual is is amazing. It's a really great manual. It's got high-quality images, stories, like fake German letters, scenario explanations. Uh, it's really, really good. One of the differences in the Atari version and the APX version is the Atari version has several levels, and the manual goes on to explain all the differences in the levels. It runs fine in all the emulators I tried. Um, the only problem I had with it was I couldn't save my games in the um, using Atari 800, and I didn't try that on the other emulators. So the gameplay itself... So yeah, so you're... You play on this big scrolling playfield. There's a, it's a, it's basically graphics mode two, with some other smaller, like graphics zero modes and stuff to for more information. But there's a big nine by twenty visible playfield. It's a little more than four screens tall and a little bit wider than two screens for scrolling. So you can you've got about, you know, roughly eight or eight screens of playfield to work with. It shows different terrains. There's steppes, which are the, the the Russian plains. There's cities, forests, mountains, rivers and coastlines, swamps, and then seas. The seas can't be crossed, and the other terrain costs more. Um, it's more difficult to move as, as you go further up in that list. So the steppes are the easiest to cross, and the swamps are the hardest. And they're very famous part of the Russian winter that really hurt the German army advance was the the swamps and the after early snowfalls and the snow would melt and the German tanks and armies would get stuck in the mud. So that is simulated here. And during the planning Hitler didn't think that they would last the battle would last this long so they didn't even bring winter coats and supplies. So the the Russian winter is a, a very important part of this simulation as well. And that's handled by the game. So as you scroll around, the cities are clearly visible unless there's a unit on top of them, and then you have to know where the cities are. So you use the joystick to move your little cursor around. The cursor is a large rectangle that, that fits a unit. There are two types of units. There are infantry and mechanized units. So when you press the button on when your cursor is on top of a unit, the name of the unit and the strength appears. And there's two different types of strength. There's the muster strength and the combat strength. I'll get into that in a little bit. So the Russian units are in red and the German units are in white. And there's no sort of fog of war in that you can see the entire map. You can see all your units, all the enemy units. There's no sort of like delay. Like, uh, there's no shadows and stuff. Like, I remember Ultima 3, you know, you can only see stuff that you 
that was actually visible, so stuff behind walls couldn't be seen until you moved your uh, moved your party so that the that you could actually sort of peek around the walls. So there's none of that here. There's um, I remember the game was it Age of Empires where you could only see like a certain radius around you. I think on the Atari there might have been a game was it Seven Cities of Gold where you could you couldn't see everything around you as if there was time that the scouts took to show up. I, I think it might have been Seven Cities of Gold, but I can't remember. This being a strategy game, you don't actually see the battles taking place. You see sort of the effects of the battles. And the, how you start the battles, or you give your units orders. And to, do your, to give orders, you move your cursor on top of a unit, press the button, and hold it down, and then sort of move in one of the four cardinal directions. And then when you're done giving directions, you release the button. So as you're giving, as you're holding the button down and and moving, the the little arrows will appear showing where the unit is going to move, and you're sort of giving unit, you're giving orders to these units as if there was nothing else there. It can the arrows will go through whatever you whatever is on the screen at the time, realizing that these units aren't going to go all that way in one turn. It will take multiple turns to get there. If you play on the expert level, you even have there's other modes of movements. So you can use a standard march. Which is the whatever it, what's used in the rest in the other levels, but you can use a forced march, where you're moving faster, but your your defensive rating goes down. You can use an assault mode, which is all about attack, and then there's an entrenchment mode, where you give up movement, but then you have larger defensive capabilities. So you can give orders to as many units as you want at, at once, and it's not until you press the start button that the that your turn actually begins. So that's when the battles start. Battles occur in, like, I think you call it 32 sub-turns from the APX manual. So the, your units will try to move or try to fight depending on what it runs against, what it runs up against. And this is where muster strength and combat strength come in. Muster strength is essentially the number of people or tanks in the unit, but combat strength is the number who are actually going to fight. So combat strength is always going to be less than muster strength because you'll have people or tanks that are wounded or out of commission. And so it's really combat strength that determines the effectiveness of the unit. There's a thing called panic when the combat strength drops below some percentage of the muster strength. And as described in the manual, says panic cancels a unit's orders. If the unit is attacking when it panics, it stays where it is. But if it's being attacked, it retreats if it can. And when a unit dies and some of its troops join a second unit, that unit is more vulnerable to panic because its combat strength is unchanged while its muster strength is increased. Thus, the ratio between the two is decreased. So also affecting movement are the supply lines, but the supply lines are not shown on the map. But basically, it's straight west from wherever your unit is located. If the supply lines detour too much, the combat strength is halved. But again, that's not really displayed on the map anywhere. But as as the German army gets further into the into Russia, obviously the supply lines get longer, and the chance for the unit's combat strength to be reduced is, is greater. You score points by capturing and holding cities, and you get the most points for holding Moscow. You get points taken away for each army that you lose, and it's very common for your score to be negative. This is a game that's very, very hard to win, which is kind of the point. From the manual, it says the point system in the expert mode especially, it reflects these brutal truths. You get very little benefit from destroying Russian formations. Instead, you're penalized for each Russian army left alive. After all, it's a threat to Germany as long as it survives. You also lose points for each casualty you sustain because every lost soldier weakens Germany. The only way to make major gains is to capture cities, and since you're always at a disadvantage, that means you'll almost always get a negative score. In other words, you'll almost always lose. Does that seem unfair to you? Unjust? Stupid? Do you feel that nobody would ever want to play a game that he cannot possibly win? And if so, you have not learned the ultimate lesson of war on the Eastern Front. Depending on what level you choose, the game lasts longer. So at the expert level, you're playing up till 1943. And at first as you play, it's it's pretty easy to push back the Russian troops, but as the winter sets in, well, presumably it gets much harder. I didn't last that long because it, take, it took me too long to, to play, and so I only played, I ended up only playing for like a couple months of game time. So I was still pushing the Russian units back fairly easily. Technically, this is one of the first smooth-scrolling games that scrolled both horizontally and vertically. And uh, Chris Crawford released the source code for the game. It was an APX item that you could order. It was a 
he said the most expensive item in the APX catalog was like $150. Nowadays, you can get the source code from directly from Chris Crawford's website or from atariarchives.org. Kevin Savitz has a bunch of stuff that he's, uh, he's put up there. So I'll include a link to both of those in the show notes. I never played this when I first had the Atari. I was always interested in playing it. I played, you know, like Avalon Hill board games and stuff. Uh, but mostly that was, I did that before I got the Atari. And once I got that, I got more interested in the, in the arcade style games. Oh, well, certainly I did play Ultima and other strategy games later on. But I was never really that inter- interested in wargaming then, wargaming then. But I've always been interested in this particular game because it's a, it's such a seminal game. You know, I like the concept of this game, sort of this wargaming style, but it's pretty slow. I think this would make a, I kept thinking, if I could only had a touch screen, you could just like touch, touch the armies, look at it. I could go so much faster. It just took so long to scroll the little, your little square cursor around that half the time you're, I was just finding it just frustrating, just the amount of time it took just to enter the orders for all the units where if I kept trying to poke my laptop screen. It's, what's that unit? Let's move that one. So I think if this were to be redesigned to use like a touch screen, I think it would be much uh, easier. Obviously, you know, back then, of course, there wasn't touchscreen technology. But that's that's what I kept thinking about in this game, was that I, I really wanted it to be more of a modern-style interface. And as, as I said, I only made it a couple months into game time, and it kind of reinforced the object that I probably will be doing arcade games from here on out, at least for the near future. There is a modern update on the TI-994A computer, there's a work in progress where a guy contacted Chris Crawford and asked if he could use the source code to convert it. And I'll include a link to that. It's an interesting read as well about the, I don't know much about the TI-994A, but that processor is interesting. It's got 16-bit registers, so it's a 16-bit machine, but there's no stack pointer. I guess there's like stack frames. Oh, not stack frames. There's like register frames where you can swap out all the registers when you jump to a subroutine. Something like that. I don't, I don't know. It's it's very different, but that's, it's an interesting sort of rabbit hole to, to go down. So yeah. So if you like wargaming, I think this is definitely one to check out if you've not checked it out before. This type of game really isn't for me. I've discovered I just don't have the time to do it now, and um, I appreciate all the technical stuff that went into the game, but I don't think I'll probably be playing this one again. That's it for Eastern Front. Next episode, I'm gonna do some couple special episodes. I've got a couple of interviews in the can, and this episode was just going to be too long with the interview. I want to keep them, you know, in the hour-ish range, and it was approaching two hours, and I was like, eh. So next episode, and the next couple episodes, actually, going to be interview episodes, where I won't review games per se, but we'll be talking about games. And I'm going to hope for a quick turnaround on these two, so don't quote me on that, but your money back if I don't get them out in the next couple weeks. I'm also working on a special secret collaboration, and the outro music coming up might give you a hint as the classic games we're going to be talking about. Don't forget to check out High Score Club Season 12 over on Atari Age on the 8-bit section. And don't forget to check out, check out Bill Kendrick's Atari Party in 2015 in Davis, California. It's May 2nd, 2015. I'll be there. There's lots of good stuff to give out, and lots of Atari folks over here in the Bay Area. I hope you'll check that out. If you have feedback for me, you can leave it at email. It's uh, feedback at playermissile.com. Or on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. I'm a member of the Throwback Network, so check out throwbacknetwork.net for lots of retro podcasts. And to pick a random one, I listened to the most recent Crazy Creepy Cool Movies by Doug McCoy. He's talking about Night of the Comet, which is a sort of a classic 80s movie, but they have a, a, a plot point in that movie is the arcade game Tempest. So I hope you enjoy this outro music, and uh, speaking of music, I have put some ringtones up on the website from Atari 8-Bit Games. Uh, Some ringtones and notifications and stuff, so those are available, and I'll have a link in the show notes. So enjoy the music, and I will see you next episode, hopefully soon. (laughs) 